All right, good morning, church. Get connected here. Um, today we are continuing our journey right through the Gospel of John, as once again we are really entering holy ground once again with these scriptures. You will recall the last time that we were together, we revisited Calvary's Hill. I don't know how long it's been since you spent some time in the Word of God on Calvary's Hill, but we were there together last week. It was a place known as the Place of the Skull. And in our text last week, we left the Lord Jesus Christ having been nailed to the cross. He's, he's still hanging there. And though physically Jesus suffered greatly on our behalf, he was marred, he looked like an animal. And though he suffered just greatly, he suffered even more for us spiritually as he himself bore our sins on that tree. We talked about the, the full weight of God's righteous judgment, the wrath of God coming down upon the Son as He paid our debt of sin. In fact, uh, where we left off, Jesus had just cried out, Tetelestai, it is finished. It is Finished. Everything that the Father has sent me to do, it is finished. It means uh, completed, accomplished in full. Tetelestai, it is finished. The, the work of redemption now complete. The sacrifice having been made, reconciliation having been accomplished. The debt of sin has been paid. The, the head of the serpent has been crushed. Every requirement of God's righteous law has been satisfied. There is nothing that can be added. There is nothing that can be subtracted to the finished work of Christ. Jesus said, it is finished. And scripture said, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Jesus, as we've been looking through this, is no victim. This was the sovereign plan of God. He was in total control from the beginning, and even in his death, it was he himself who gave up his spirit. Well, that's uh, where we left off last week, so would you join me this morning and turn in your Bibles once again to John chapter 19, and we're going to be looking at verses 31 to 42 this morning. We'll finish the chapter. John chapter 19, verses 31 to 42. And the title of this message, which I normally um, don't talk about, I do want to bring to your attention today as I titled this message, The Burial of the Conquering King. The Burial of the Conquering King. So, Let's begin this morning by reading our text once through, and then we can look at uh, each of these verses together. So beginning in verse 31, this is the reading of God's inspired, inherent, and infallible word. John writes, Then the Jews, because it was the day of preparation, so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, asked Pilate that the legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other who was crucified with him. But coming to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. And he who has seen, has testified, and his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, 
so that you also may believe. For these things came to pass to fulfill the scripture, not a bone of him shall be broken. And again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate granted permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus, who had come to him by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen wrappings with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. Therefore, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. I'm not sure if our finite minds can totally comprehend what it means that God is completely sovereign over everything. Everything. Last week, uh, we read in John 19, verse 28, that after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. John is filled with verses like these that demand such a high view of who Christ is. They're subtle, but they're everywhere. And I've tried to point them out to you as we've gone through this gospel of John. John desperately wants us to see Christ for who he is as the exalted Savior, high and lit up. And instead of thinking of Jesus as a helpless victim of circumstance, John reminds us, as he has done from the very beginning of this gospel, that Jesus is in the driver's seat. Jesus is in the driver's seat. Jesus has been placed upon this cross. Yes, he is suffering. And yes, he is dying. But Jesus, because he is the sovereign King of kings and Lord of lords, even this cross is a throne to him. Every last detail from his birth to his death was the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. And you can follow this from the very outset of John's gospel. I think back to uh, John chapter 2 and the wedding at Cana. We see Jesus with his mother, and there's pressure mounting because of a common problem that the wine has run out. So she implores her son to, to help with this very common problem. But Jesus gently rebukes his mother, for he says, Woman, my hour has not yet come. So at the very outset of Jesus's public ministry, he understood that he was operating on a divine timetable. He was in control. He knew the hour and the time of, of every moment. Jesus knew that he was finishing the work that his father had sent him to do. And this was apparent throughout his earthly ministry. And in John 4, verse 34, Jesus said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Always with this determination to obey the father, always with his um, face sent like flint towards Jerusalem, always moving towards the cross at this divinely orchestrated pace. John 5, 36, that he does the work of the father. John 17, verse 4, the, the high priestly prayer. Jesus says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And here, here he is on the cross. From the cross, 
reigning as if it were a throne. Jesus knew, the text tells us. He knew, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scriptures, I thirst. Even in his dying, notice the, the terminology in verse 30. He bowed his head and gave up his spirit. He maintains his full sovereignty even here. This is not a, a pathetic, untimely, circumstantial victim of the cross, a victim of Rome and of these Jewish leaders. Instead, this is the sovereign plan of God, and Jesus is accomplishing it according to his Father's perfect will. And this is exactly how the early church would also talk about the Lord's crucifixion. In Acts chapter 4, um, you remember the scene, the, the believers are there and, and they're praying for, for boldness, having been locked up and, and let out. And so they pray, verse 24, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. You might recognize this. They're praying Psalm 2. He who sits in the heavens laughs. And, and then they continue to pray for truly in this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Jesus is sovereign on the cross. King Jesus knows who he is. King Jesus knows who his father is. So don't think wrongly about this moment. This was the plan all along. And, and the reason why we, we, we do feel so much is we, because the, we know the reason that he had to hang there. It was because of our rebellion and our sin. And Jesus, knowing this, still went to the cross. For God, you see, shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. No one could take his life from him, but he could lay it down. But in our verses here this morning, verses 31 to 42, we've just read about the burial of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you're like me at all, the the we'll call it the burial narrative, doesn't normally occupy too much thought. We think much of his crucifixion, and rightfully so. We preach Christ and Christ crucified. We think much of his resurrection as it was foundational to the apostles' teaching. All through the books of Acts, we see over and over again, they proclaim to the Jews, you killed them, but God raised them, and we've seen them. But when it comes to the Lord's death, we don't often think about his burial, and yet it's in all four Gospels, and it appears to be an essential part of the message. In fact, if I was to ask you to pick a, a verse or two or three and to take someone that doesn't know God's word and you wanted to find just a few verses that concisely and, and simply summarizes the gospel a compelling case could be made for that it would be 1 Corinthians chapter 15 3 through 4 that you would choose in this passage the apostle Paul lays out a simple bare minimum understanding of the core essentials of the gospel. Paul writes, For I delivered to you of first importance. First importance, which I have also received. 
that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. And so, place right between the crucifixion and the resurrection is the burial of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Apostle Paul himself tells us this is of first importance. He could have left it out and just said he died for our sins and he was raised from the dead. We say that all the time. But Paul says, no, of first importance, he died, he was buried, and he's been raised. So we should ask the question then before we walk through these verses, why? <laughs> why such an importance of the burial of the Lord Jesus Christ that, that it would be elevated to such a high position for Paul to say, this is of first importance. And um, I spent most of my time this week on this. <laughs> but again, I, I compact it into just a, a few minutes for you. So I just gave three quick reasons. I think first it emphasizes the reality of Jesus' death. Christ died. He didn't merely fall into a coma. He didn't pass out only later to awaken. There was no swoon. Jesus died. And you only bury people who are dead. I mean, even in our own day, when you have the death of someone who's uh, widely popular, greatly loved, uh, they can become the subject of widespread denial, supported later by supposed sightings. I remember for years in the lines of the grocery stores, almost all of the magazines were filled with sightings of Elvis Presley. And it would be seen here, he's, he's still alive. And some picture that looked nothing like Elvis staring at you. And in the first century, you had the Gnostics. And you had people who denied Jesus had died at all. He, he only seemed to die, you see. Uh, for Jesus was too good to die. We believed he was God. They believed in a, a, a dualism, a dualism, which essentially meant that they didn't believe Jesus to be truly human as the Son of God. There's a, and this was a heresy that was constantly trying to invade the early first century and second century church. It's why John, in his first letter to the church, wrote, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, test the spirits to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and now is in the world already. So this was no small thing, and, and the Apostle John rightly calls it what it is. This is the spirit of Antichrist wanting to change who Christ is. And so this is critically important to the Christian faith, because remember, the wages of sin is what? Yeah. Romans 6.23, because of our sin, that, that's... That's what's owed to us. And Jesus died in our place. He bore the curse of sin that should have been upon us. It's not just that he shed blood. He became the sacrifice and was slain. In Revelation chapter 5, there's this incredible scene as, as John is in chapter 4 called up into heaven. And he's in the throne room of God. And all of heaven is looking at who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. But no one in all of heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll. And everyone who is in heaven is weeping, asking who is worthy. Until finally, 
John sees a lamb standing as though he had been slain. And one of the elders will tell John, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered. So he can open the scroll and loose its seals. This is the judgment to the title deed of earth. Who is worthy? And the Bible says that between the throne of the four living creatures and of the elders, John saw the lamb and he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne, God the Father. And then all of heaven fell down before the lamb. And in verse 9, it says, they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed the people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. So why is the burial important? Number one, it emphasizes the reality of Christ's death, the lamb. He was slain on our behalf, purchased purchased us by his perfect blood, he ransomed the people for God. Second, the burial is of great importance because it marks the end of his suffering and his humiliation. And it is, it is the beginning of his exaltation. And we're going to cover this further as we get to verses 38 to 42 at the end of the sermon. But it, it's a pivotal turning point, and I do want to talk about it a little bit now. Because Jesus will come to the end of his suffering at this stage, at the burial in the tomb. And the mere fact that he will be buried in a rich man's tomb fulfills prophecy and really marks the beginning of John pointing to Christ's exaltation and the king in glory. And again, this is one of these seemingly small details that John uses to exalt Christ to point out the sovereignty of Christ. Throughout his life, Jesus had no place to lay his head. Uh, he was born in a dirty animal's trough. In fact, we're told often that Jesus just slept outside. He had limited resources. What, what he had was given to him. In fact, in the beginning of uh, Luke chapter 8, uh, we read about the women that he healed, and it is the women and many others who support his ministry as they provided for him through their means. Throughout his life, he's associated with the poor and, and the least of these. He made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, Philippians 2, and became obedient to the point of death, even death of the cross. And so from his incarnation right to his death, Jesus goes low, low, lower, death on the cross. But now, now, starting in his burial, we begin to see Philippians chapter 2, 9 through the 11, the second half of these great verses. Therefore, God says, therefore God also has highly exalted him, given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And, and as we'll see in our verses today, he will be buried in a rich man's tomb. And this has nothing to do with material things. Rather, this is the beginning of his exaltation. This is the father's response to the son who humbled himself and gave, became obedient to the point of death even death on the cross. Therefore, God also highly exalted him. And we see the shift beginning immediately after it is finished. It is finished, Father. And then thirdly, the burial is important because Romans 6 verse 4 says, we were buried with Christ. In fact, Romans 6 says that we have died with Christ, we have been buried with Christ, and we have been raised with Christ. All three. But what is the significance that 
that we've been buried with him. Um, well, the fact that we have been united with him in the likeness of his death means that the power and the dominion that sin once had over us has now been broken. Sin is still present in us, but it is no longer uh, president over us. It is no longer, uh, no longer has tyranny over us as it once had. It's been broken. And, and the fact that we are now buried with Christ, in Christ, with Christ, means that our old self before Christ is ancient history. It's been buried. What you once were before your conversion, B.C., before Christ has been buried. Do you see at the end of verse 4 how it says that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. What is old, corrupted, the old self, God has buried and since he has buried that old life, there is a radical change in your new life that has taken place inside your heart. And here Paul calls it newness of life. And so the burial is part of this radical transformation that takes place. And then notice what it says also in verse 5 and then at the start of verse 6 there. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, Certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him. Beloved, mark it. While we may still struggle with certain sins, and Lord knows how often I fall short, nevertheless, you and I need to know that God says that old man that you once were is buried. It's over. Over. He's buried that old man. Never did it raise his ugly head again. Out with the old, in with the new. And so this becomes critically important at what we then are looking at today. The burial of the conquering king. So as we walk through this passage today, I broke it up into just two headings. And the first thing I want you to see is, number one, Christ's power over death was manifested in his dying. Christ's power over death was manifested in dying. And we see this power as the Lord Jesus Christ controls every little detail, even in his death. But first, John lays out the, the circumstances of the Lord's death. So look at this. He says in verse 31, Then the Jews, because it was the day of preparation. So we'll stop right there. What is the day of preparation? Um, well, simply put, uh, the Jews were preparing for the Sabbath. <laughs> they were preparing. It was Friday. Jesus had died at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Um, no labor could be done after 6 p.m. on Friday when the next day begins, the Sabbath. So everyone is in a hurry to prepare for the Sabbath in order not to labor or to work on Saturday. So it's not just any Sabbath either. Notice that's a uh, parenthetical that John writes for the Sabbath was a high day. It was a, it was a uh, mega day, a megas day, a, a great day, a high day, a, a high and holy day, you could say. That's the idea. And certainly there were these Pharisees and these priests and members of the Sanhedrin, these religious rulers who would be walking around the temple courts and during the Passover throughout the city, wagging their finger at people, judging them, instructing them on, on what they had to do to, to keep this rule or how they had fallen short on that rule. And they needed to keep these, you see. And, and, and they didn't like these, these bodies hanging up there on those crosses, which was normal practice for the Romans. 
They didn't care. They nailed you to this cross, and you could sit there until people would anguish for days. The vultures would come. Rats would come. There would be flies all over the place. And these rotting corpus, corpses would just stay up there as a, as a deterrent for anyone who would cross Rome. But whenever there were these festivals and celebrations, the Jews would, would probably plead for them, as we see here, to, to hurry up the process and to take down these bodies so there was no bodies hanging up there on the Sabbath. And this was against the law. If you look at Deuteronomy 21 and elsewhere, not to have a body hang on a tree overnight, but rather you should, you should bury them on the same day. And so on this Sabbath day, the day that God had set aside in order to give his people rest, the day that he blessed, put aside, and that he made holy, on this Sabbath day, the day before the Sabbath, the, the day of preparation, so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, they asked Pilate that their legs might be broken. They uh, would have a, 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 a higher, uh, an iron mallet, uh, basically a, a sledgehammer, and these soldiers would go to each man and, and crack the men's legs, their femas, breaking them in order to hasten the crucifixion and this person's death. And so they make the request so that the bodies might be taken away. Religious people are incredibly dangerous. And it's still true today. In an attempt to avoid the curse of desecration on the Sabbath, they want the Messiah that they, ki that they killed taken down off that cross. <laughs> Do you catch this? That's what they're requesting. Because it, it's not just the Sabbath, it's, it's the Passover. It's the highest and, and, and holiest day. And we're going to celebrate the atonement and we're going to celebrate uh, God's rescue and his covenant people uh, as he rescued them out of Egypt. And he sent the angel of death and, and it passed over the houses because there was blood smeared on the, on the two doorposts and, and on the lentils. That's what we're going to do this weekend. So we can't have him hanging up there on that cross. Do you see how blind religion is and legalism? Yes, these were God's laws. But do you see how they have twisted them to the exact opposite of his intention? Never mind being so blind that you have killed the author of life. But now in an attempt to avoid defiling the land, they instead take a curse upon themselves. Well, after uh, Pilate granted the Jews' request, verse 32, so the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other who was crucified with him. Remember, Jesus was not only dying in our place, but in a literal sense, he was dying in Barabbas' place. And Barabbas' two accomplices, it's believed, were on either side of the Lord Jesus. And at the beginning of this crucifixion, both criminals were ridiculing and, and mocking the Lord. But at some point, one of them changes their tune. And he rebukes the other thief and he asks Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. I told you this last week. It's, it's just absolutely amazing. If you look at the, the last seven sayings of Jesus on the cross as he's hanging there, he's either quoting scripture or he's pouring out grace upon grace. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. Caring and taking care of his mother. And then remember what he says to that thief upon the cross. Today you will be with me in paradise. And when those soldiers broke that thief's legs, no doubt he felt the lungs and the burning as the asphyxiation came on that cross. But the words of Jesus must have rung so beautiful in his ears. 
today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus was still saving sinners right up into his very last breath. Verse 33. But coming to Jesus when they saw that he had already that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But just to make sure, verse 34 says, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out. And it's here the preachers turn into doctors and, and talk about the heart and, and I think the, uh, the pair, I can't remember what it's called. Anyone remember the pair? Cardian? I went to Liberty Online. You'll have to talk to somebody else. <laughs> Perhaps this is what John is pointing to here. He seems to be uh, really concerned about what this is. But I think here John is, is possibly being extremely theological as water and blood are, are used throughout the Bible, Bible as, as symbols of uh, cleansing and atonement. In Ezekiel 36 and 37, the prophet talks about the promise of a, a new covenant, an everlasting covenant, a covenant of peace and forgiveness of this new covenant, Yahweh says, then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean and I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you and I will remove the heart of stone from the flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. Zechariah 31 speaks of a fountain of salvation flowing forth. I don't think this is some kind of mere medical phenomenon that's supposed to make us go, see, he's really dead. And, and obviously he's dead. Uh, but what, what's happening here is what John is going to tell us in verse 35, and something that becomes the theme of the apostles' preaching. Verse 35, and he who has seen and testified, and his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth so that you also may believe. What is all this about? I mean, he was doing just fine telling the story about the crucifixion of Christ, but here he feels the need to er, stop the story once water and blood are mentioned. And he insists that his testimony is true. Why is John seemingly so concerned with this? Because I think John knows he's telling the truth about the power of the blood and the power of this death upon the cross. Tell me if this sounds familiar in 1 John chapter 5, 6 through 10. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God, that he is born concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. I think John is thinking about the cross. Because what you believe about Christ and what you believe about Christ on this cross will determine your eternal destiny. And so... That's why he's saying he who, has, he who has seen has testified. And his testimony is true. And he knows that he's telling the truth. Why? So that you may believe. He's worried about you. And, and that's the purpose in, in John writing this entire gospel, isn't it? You remember when we, we started the very first sermon, I didn't start in John chapter 1, verse 1. We started in John chapter 20. Verses 30 and 31. Because it's there, John lays out his entire purpose for writing this gospel. 
He says, Jesus performed many other signs which are not written in this book. But these, the ones that John have written, these have been written. So why? So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. John wants disciples that will follow Jesus full of faith, and so he alludes to that here by saying when, when that side of Jesus opened up, proving his death was full and final, the blood and water poured out of the Savior, this was the fountain of salvation. This is the testimony, and it is true. And it is for this that the apostles would face death and die themselves as martyrs for their faith in Jesus Christ because they knew at the cross he had accomplished everything. Tetelestai, it is finished. By giving up his life when he did, our Lord assured that the soldiers would then fulfill prophecy. It says in verse 36, For these things came to pass to fulfill the scripture. Not a bone of him shall be broken. According to Exodus 12, 46 and Numbers 9, 12, not a bone of the Passover lamb uh, was to be broken. Spotless, blameless, no broken bones. Jesus was the perfect fulfillment of the Passover lamb and as such could not have his legs be broken. Beyond that beautiful picture, however, is the explicit prophecy of Psalm 34:20. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. To which John refers to when he writes there in verse 36. For these things came to pass to fulfill scripture, not a bone of him shall be broken. And not only that, but, but Jesus dying early it also led to him being pierced to be sure that he was dead. That uh, unusual act of piercing Jesus' side was essential to fulfill yet another prophecy. As verse 37 tells us, and again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they pierced. The apostles quoting Zechariah 12.10 where Yahweh declares I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. The ultimate fulfillment of this prophecy however, will be at Christ's second coming when the, the remnant and repentant remnant of Israel will mourn over rejecting and killing their king. We see a picture of this in Revelation 1, verse 7. It says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. Well, we go to our final section. Number two, just a couple verses, 38 through 42. And here we'll see Christ's power over death was manifested in his burial. Now we get to the manifestation in his burial. Jesus um, not only exhibited his divine power over death, but by controlling de the details of his dying, but even more remarkable than, remarkable than what he had under control in his death, he also controlled the circumstances of his burial after he was dead. And so we see this now. We begin in verse 38 with an introduction. After these things, and, and we need to ask, after what things? Well, after the crucifixion. And, and John, as he records this gospel, he wants us to know that that what now follows is, is, is closely connected and tied to the cruci uh, crucifixion. In fact, this will happen within moments. Jesus died at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And he had to be buried by 6 p.m. in the evening. All right? So there's, we, there's three hours here of a time back. That's all that 
this will take place in. So after these things, after the crucifixion of Christ, after piercing Jesus' side with the spear and blood comes out, after these things, boom, Joseph of Arimathea steps into the scene. Who is Joseph of Arimathea? Well, Matthew 27, 57 tells us he was a rich man. Mark 15, 43 says he was a prominent member of the Jewish ruling council of the Sanhedrin. Luke 23, 23, 50 says he was a good and righteous man. Luke 23 also tells us that he had not consented to the Sanhedrin's um, plan to kill the Lord Jesus when they took a vote. And so he, he was willing to take a stand and not cast his vote for Christ's crucifixion. So was he a true believer? Only God knows that. But look what follows. Being a disciple of Jesus. Being a disciple of Jesus typically in the New Testament is synonymous with being a true believer and a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, but not always. The term Christian uh, didn't even, even exist until I think uh, comes out in Acts chapter 11. No one is called a, a Christian. We see saint in the verses earlier today. That was used. Um, no one's called a Christian in the four Gospels. It won't be until later at the church at Antioch that the disciples started being called Christians. And we've talked about this before, but that was a, a term of derision. Christian, it was, it was a demeaning term originally. It, it was a uh, little Christ, little Christ. But, but the early believers so loved, so loved being connected to their Savior in any way, any association with the Lord Jesus Christ, that they embraced it and they kept that name for themselves, the Christians. But from the beginning of Jesus's early ministry, no one was called Christian. If you're born again, you must be a disciple of Jesus Christ. You would be a learner, a follower, a student of Jesus. And that's the Great Commission, isn't it? Matthew 20, 19. Go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. And, and so we read here, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but... <laughs> There's a but there. You see that? This but is a negative. But a secret one. Secret one? That's sinful silence. There's no such thing as a secret undercover agent of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as Joseph Arimathea begins to live his life for Christ, he starts out stumbling all over his shoelaces. He's He's a secret disciple as he begins his walk with the Lord. And the richer you are, sometimes you got a lot more of the world that you need to let go of, right? And uh, if you're like Joseph, uh, maybe you can relate. You're in maybe an elevated position at your workplace. Uh, you're prominent for some reason. There are more eyes on you than, than somebody else. And for Joseph of Arimathea, he began as a, as a secret one for fear of the Jews. He, he's fearful of losing his prestige. We saw earlier in, in chapter 12 that these, a lot of these religious rulers believed in Jesus, but, but it was over the, the fear of man. They wanted to appease man rather than God. Fearful of losing his position, fearful of losing his power, fearful of being cut off from the Sanhedrin. He is likely fearful for his life. And he has not gone along with the status quo, however. So can you identify maybe somewhere in your life with Joseph? We, we've all done it somewhere along the way in our walk. How easy it is for us just to maybe be silent and not speak up at a time when we should be giving a bold witness for Christ? Or maybe you've been fearful. If you speak up, that it might cost you something. A career, a relationship, family. That's right where Joseph of Arimathea was, but it doesn't stop there for him. Continue to read in verse 38. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. Beloved, this was an extraordinary, bold move. 
This was a very, bold, I mean, now he's stepping out of the shadows of anonymity, stepping into the spotlight, going to the very man who pronounced the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, Pilate, at a time when even Jesus' own disciples, except for John, had all scattered and run away to their own homes. But God is possibly working in Joseph's heart, and he suddenly becomes filled with courage. And no doubt, he would have seen the courage that he saw in the eyes and the heart of the Lord Jesus Christ as he stood in front of the Sanhedrin. He stood in front of them for the trial, and as Joseph of Arimathea was, was looking into the very eyes of Christ just earlier this morning, he saw a bold, heroic figure in Christ, not backing down. And no doubt this had an effect on Joseph of Arimathea, and now he's ready. He's ready to slide his cart forward in the deck, and he's going. He's going to Pilate, and he's asking for this body. He's ready to fly his flag out for whose side he's on. No matter the cost. Openly, publicly, he's declaring, I identify with Christ. I'm going for him. So he asked Pilate, they might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate granted permission. <laughs> Again, the invisible hand of the sovereign God Steering the heart of Pilate, Proverbs 21.1, I, I love, says that, that king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He channels it whichever way he wills. And God wants his son, body, buried in the tomb before 6 o'clock, before this Passover ends. He is the lamb slain. And so even... Pilate's hardened heart of stone is being directed by God's will. And even this is a fulfillment of Scripture. As Isaiah 53 verse 9 says, His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death. The Lord Jesus Christ was crucified, surrounded by wicked men. Yet, it was fulfilled through Pilate, he was with a rich man in his death. And a rich man named Joseph of Arimathea suddenly comes out of hiding. God's overruling sovereignty is being fulfilled, and Christ's power over death is being manifested even in his burial. So we read at the end of verse 38, so he came and he took away his body. <laughs> but in verse 39, we find out Joseph isn't acting alone. He had a cohort working with him. And, and this is equally amazing as well. In verse 39, Nicodemus. <laughs> Nicodemus, who had come first to him by night, also came. You remember Nicodemus, don't you? Nicodemus came by night. We, we remember John chapter 3. And it was there that Jesus blew his mind, right? When he told him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. It was John 3, 16 that he said to Nicodemus, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but will have eternal life. Nicodemus showed up in chapter 7 and, and made a small stand for Christ there. Maybe the Father had begun to draw him, but now here in chapter 19... Again, only God knows the heart, but Nicodemus returns. It's really interesting. And, and don't forget, just like Joseph, he's a very prominent man of Israel. He's the teacher of Israel. He was also a member of the Sanhedrin. He was a Pharisee. He, he, he's a towering figure in Israel at this time. He goes anywhere. Everyone knows who he is. Notice what it says in verse 39, Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night, also came. And Nicodemus brings with him a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 100 pounds in weight. This was a ton of aloes and fragrances that Nicodemus brings. In fact, this amount of spices is only used for kings. So Nicodemus got that right. 
And this was a mixture of myrrh and aloes that would have been made into a paste and would have been spread upon the, the linen wrappings to, to cover the stench that, that death would bring. Verse 40, so they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen wrappings with spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Can I just point out to you once again that, that no one here or anywhere is thinking, um, well, he's going to rise from the dead Sunday morning anyways. <laughs> right? No. As amazing as it is that these men are here and caring for the body of Christ, they're still bearing in their minds a dead Christ, a dead Messiah. But in their hearts, they have to do this. They have to express their love and devotion to Jesus. And the only way that they know how God has directed them, they are going to participate in the burial as prophesied by God. Verse 41, now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. This was a private garden located close to where the Lord Jesus was crucified. Even the location of the tomb was providential, you see. With, with the sun getting ready to set on the day, these men needed to take the Lord Jesus down off the cross. First they had to go to Pilate. Then they had to come back and get the Lord Jesus Christ down off of the cross. And then they had to carry him, bring him, prepare him for the tomb, bury him all within this three-hour time period. Christ said three days, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. If it's after six, it counts as Saturday. The, the day turned at the 12th hour, 6 p.m. So the fact that the garden was near the place where he was crucified, you see, God's working in all the small details. Matthew 27, 60 tells us it was Joseph's new tomb. This, this sounds a, uh, like a, a private garden, an expensive piece of of real estate for a tomb. Um, if you didn't have the means, which most, most didn't, you would simply dig a hole in the ground. And you got buried in the ground. But scripture declared he was with a rich man in his death, you see. <laughs> the king should always get our best. Amen? And if there's any application here for us, I would say that we should follow suit Disciples don't give the Lord their leftovers. We give him what's on top. We give him what's best. I think of the priests of Israel. I'll share real quick in Malachi chapter 1. That God rebuked. He said, a son honors his father and a servant his master. Then if I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my respect? Says the Lord of hosts to you. Oh, priests, you despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? You are presenting defiled food upon my altar. But you say, how have we defiled you? In that, you say, the table of the Lord is to be despised. But when you present the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you present the lame and the sick, is that not evil? Why not offer it to your governor? Would he be pleased with you? Or would he receive you kindly, says the Lord of hosts. God's essentially saying to these priests, when you bring me your gifts and your sacrifices to me, you dishonor me. Keep them. The, the sacrificial animals that they brought to the altar were their leftovers. They were the lame, the blind, the diseased. That's what they gave to God, and they kept the best for themselves. Selfish, the Lord says, give those to your governors. I want your best. And that's what we see here, both of Joseph of Arimathea and of Nicodemus. Nicodemus, he brings the abundance, the hundred pounds of myrrh and aloes. We, we see Joseph, a, a new tomb in the garden, which no one had yet been laid new. Amazing. Verse 42 ends this chapter. Therefore, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. It is late Friday afternoon before the sun sets. Jesus Christ is, is laid in his tomb. A massive stone would have then been rolled and 
into a, a pre-dug ditch and, and walked in as it sealed the entrance to the grave. It appears as though death has won. From the outside world looking in, it looks as though he died, death won. They were right. He was just a man. He was just a teacher. Jesus is dead. The disciples are hiding. Satan is winning. But it's only Friday, and Sunday is coming. Sunday is coming. Jesus said in John 10, 17 through 18, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one may take it from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. There were not enough demons in hell that could have stopped the Savior from rising from the dead. And Lord willing, we'll look at chapter 20 next week. So what do we see in this account? Well, it's never over till it's over. As long as there's God, there is hope. There is hope. And what is impossible for men is possible for God. Sunday's coming. Sunday is coming. And in God's perfect time, and he, he delights to, to swoop into the situation and to rescue his people. He causes all things to work together for good for those who love him and been called according to his purpose. What else do we see? In his burial, in his death, Jesus orchestrated all of the details to accomplish God's perfect will. What will he do in your life? If you need prayers this morning or encouragement, you can come forward. We'd love to pray with you. Please stand as we sing the last song of worship.